Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Tell me what's wrong with my politics. Tell me where people like me are missing something fundamental. This is kind of like, uh, you know, when Joe and Lai and, 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 and Mao had to, uh, you know, hang out with Nixon. I was and, definitely thinking of it just yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Bhaskar Sankara who is the publisher of Jacobin Magazine. If you don't know Jacobin Magazine, it is a genuine left publication, uh, not not liberal, not sort of democratic, like left. And it has been, I think, pretty influential in changing the nature of the American left on, on, on creating new currents that are, in my view, affecting politics pretty deeply. He started it when he was an undergraduate at George Washington University, which is incredibly impressive. And then now it has about a 40,000 person print circulation uh, and about a million folks on the website each month. So it's been a it's been a hell of a project. He uh, has also for a long time been been a critic of my politics, which is one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk with him. I wanted to get the critique of me as a, as a neoliberal and on the show, which is something some of you have been asking for. So this was a, a very fun conversation to have. I'm appreciative to him for being game for it. Before we jump into it, uh, as always, you can email me guest ideas, show feedback, whatever you may want at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But with that said, and without further ado, here is Bhaskar Sankara. Bhaskar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let, let's talk through the sort of basis of your politics, because I, I think a lot of listeners of the show, you know, there are I've had a lot of conservatives on here. I've had a lot of liberals on here, but you're an actual socialist. And that means for different people, different things. So so, so what does it mean to you? Well, I, I do consider myself a, a Democratic uh, socialist. Um, but obviously, my my fi- my goal is um, not just, let's say, a um, better uh, score within the current game, but an entirely new game with new rules. Um, so in other words, what that means to me is that democracy is a good thing. And insofar as we have democracy in the political sphere, uh, it should be defended. 
So I'm not in favor of any liberalism in the political sphere, but the democracy should also be extended into social and economic spheres as well. So if democracy is a good thing in civil society as a norm, then why wouldn't we extend some of the same logic to the workplace, for example, through strengthening in the short term collective bargaining and, and the power of unions, but in the long term through creating worker cooperatives and other forms of democratic workplaces. And in general, just pushing towards an extension of democracy into spheres that it hasn't really been in before, and thinking that people should have a right to have a say over the forces that govern their lives. Um, but another way to think about it is through kind of the lens of, of decommodification, which is just really a, a an overly long word for saying taking something out of the market. So. Um, let's say something like basic primary education. Even a, a, a Tea Party Republican would probably concede the basic right of a young person to have access to um, uh, that kind of education, be able to learn basic arithmetic, be able to be literate, whatever else. Now, a socialist logic, I think, would say that Yes, that right is fundamental, but is it necessarily more fundamental than the right to housing, than the right to uh, health care, than the right to three meals a day or, or whatnot? So at the very least, it's about taking more spheres of life outside of the market and allowing these um, to be enjoyed as social rights. Can, can I let me interrupt you here for a second? So, so let me ask you about how that extends, because to go back to that Tea Party person, they might say, yes, every child has a right to, to basic education, but the market will deliver better outcomes. So what we want to give them is the right to a voucher that will let them choose a private school of their choice so they can go to the kind of school they want. And, you know, I think you see this in, in a lot of spheres of life, even where there's an idea on the right and sometimes obviously uh, on the liberal left, too, that there should be a right to something that the way the right is constructed is that it should be a right to have something that is going to be provided through private means. And my sense of your politics is that you would see that as a bad unto itself, that that, that is not decommodification. Well, let's just say that markets in and of themselves aren't necessarily um, a problem for socialists. The problem is uh, how these markets function. Uh, the fact that these markets are are connected to businesses that are uh, privately owned that give the people who have this ownership disproportionate power over others. I mean, obviously, when it comes to education, when it comes to healthcare, I mean, these are things that I don't think you have to be a socialist to see that, um, you know, these aren't regular consumer products. You know, uh, having a market for something like healthcare has proven to be. Um, you know, a terrible, expensive, um, you know, idea. So I think I think in those um, those questions, people don't actually want choice, right? They want to be able to have a school around the corner for them that's high quality, that's just as good as all the other schools, that's well funded, and that they can just not really have to, um, you know, rack their brains after work, applying for school lotteries, and you know, going through all this other you know, uh, stuff. So I think that's a key uh, difference. I, I think certain goods like that just need to be available and should exist outside of a market. I, I do think that when it comes to the language of, of rights, uh, sure, certain conservatives would want to say that someone has a right to get a voucher or, or something like that. But if it's not, if it's tied to someone's ability to pay, then I don't think it's a truly universal uh, right. 
And in a certain case, you know, in a um, social system, I could maybe imagine even someone's right to send their kid to a religious school um, or something like that. So maybe there would be some sort of incorporation of of of, um, of some of these these things. But I think that's a, a fundamental difference. You know, having a market function in consumer goods, I think, is very different than education or healthcare or or basics like that. So I want to try to map out the the borders of this because I I think this is. A, a really interesting piece of it. So I want to separate the idea of having the ability to pay, because as you say, if, if something is tied to your ability to pay, then in no way is it a right, um, from how something is provided, who has power over its provision. You can imagine things that are not dependent on your ability to pay, but are provided by a company that has a CEO that is traded on a stock exchange, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and you had written in a piece uh, where you were talking about healthcare that you said socials understand that single payer loan cannot deal with the cost spiral driven by for-profit hospital and pharmaceutical companies. If we did get a single payer system, the fight wouldn't be over. Socials would then fight for nationalization of the pharmaceutical industry. And, and I think that's an interesting point of delineation between possibly you and, and others, possibly even me, which is to say that I would hear that and while I don't want anybody to have the right to medicine dependent on their ability to pay, I do think there are innovative functions that the market plays. I think there are innovative functions that the profit incentive creates. And so I would worry that if you nationalize the entire pharmaceutical industry, that you would end up without as many high-quality pharmaceuticals, without as many innovations, we wouldn't know what we had lost. Is that is, is that me misreading your position, or is that something you don't worry about? D- 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 help me out here. Well, okay, there, there's a few things to get into. I, I do think that wh- what I was basically trying to address with that that line was just simply that you know we could easily imagine single payer uh, failing for a variety of reasons in the um, United States, um, partially because of how large our healthcare sector is, how profitable our healthcare sector is, it's easy to imagine the ways in which uh, the government would be left footing the bill as um, you know private hospitals and pharmaceuticals and whatnot uh, try to very aggressively um, bargain with the U.S. and and maybe a way that the Canada or other other systems have um, have avoided. Um, so I, I do think it it kind of naturally lends itself to. Um, pushing for for deeper forms of socialization. Now, I would say that a lot of our basic research functions, um, I'm not a healthcare kind of you know, expert, right? I'm a uh, jack of all trades, you know, far, far, far from a master of, uh, of any, but, but a lot of our basic research uh, functions are provided by the state funding. I think in the same way those um, people don't necessarily need a incentive, there's not necessarily going to always have to be a cash incentive for the development of new drugs. Um, insulin was developed by a, a team of doctors that received no royalty for it. Um, in fact, uh, many of them didn't even bother to want to put their name on the um, patent for it. So I think we could easily imagine drugs being constructed in that way. But you might want to actually f- create certain incentives for people to, or for teams of people to 
discover something. But you could do that, I, th- I would imagine, through other mechanisms. Like you could give grants or, or chunks of, of, of money or other, other things like that to um, uh, teams that have just discovered um, you know, something. You could have some variation on, on even the kind of prize idea. And I would imagine this would be a slow, gradual process over time where you create a government um, a sector where teams are you know, state te- uh, state employees doing this kind of uh, research and development, and they're competing also with others uh, uh, too. So, I mean, I, I think that there are certain spheres where there needs to be um, uh, incentives. Socialists traditionally haven't been for a flat a completely flat egalitarian um, wage necessarily. What they've been concerned about is power relations. They've been concerned about the fact that a boss whose power is just derived from their position in the market, just derived from their position of ownership over their workplace, can almost unilaterally uh, decide on wages and conditions. And then, obviously, if you have a trade union, then you're going to see some sort of uh, collective bargaining, some sort of restraints on what this boss can do in the workplace. Um, if you go further, though, we want to imagine what it would be like for workers themselves to elect their management on fixed terms, to be able to really have a deeper stake and and ownership. So when we think about, um, and socialists often talk about cooperatives, uh, oftentimes they're talking about cooperatives competing against each other in the market. Um, so you're still, you still have tons of incentives. In fact, your average worker probably has more incentives to increase their productivity. There's probably more incentives in some cases to pursue the automation of bad jobs that nobody wants to uh, to work. I think the difference is really today we're competing in a market where failure can often mean complete destitution, whereas in my sort of ideal uh, society, we'd be having uh, a sphere for consumer goods where there's still some competition but the penalties for losing that competition would just merely mean, you know, bouncing back onto a very generous welfare state, a very generous sphere of decommodified goods, uh, then uh, being able to retrain, kind of assemble, um, or apply for credit with a group of other people to start a new enterprise or something uh, like that. So, so talk, so talk to yeah. me then about where do you differ from what I would think of as a traditional liberal, like an Elizabeth Warren. So, so I was reading something Paul Krugman actually wrote on Twitter just before we we began talking, and he, he was talking with someone. I, I don't fully know the context of this, but he was saying that yeah, capitalism is driven by self-interest, but we should be able to set bounds on its immorality. He said greed with rules, social democracies with market economies, but rules and strong safety nets, they aren't moral utopias, but they're the most decent societies ever created. And I think of that as the liberal position, that you want to have the market with its profit incentives and so on working. But on the other hand, the penalty for failure should never be destitution. The penalty for losing your job should not be destitution. And so you see, you know, liberals think traditionally want healthcare to be a right and they, you know, a lot of them are interested in universal basic incomes and, you know, pretty expansive social safety nets. Where do you differ from them? How how do you how do you how how do you redraw the boundaries? So when it comes to someone like like Warren, of course, I would love to see a lot of the things. Um, and day to day, we fight for a lot of the same reforms. Uh, so it's, it's not a matter of simply juxtaposing um, everything that the Elizabeth Warrens of the world uh, want with what 
um, or, or socialists in general would, would want. I, I think the key is the, this this broader question. Even what I just described, as as modest as it might have um, seemed, and I'm trying to obviously make my my vision seem as feasible as as, uh, as no, possible. No, don't give me give me um, the utopian. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, uh, well, I, well, I don't. I mean, uh, so there's a Sidney Hook back when he was a, um, a Marxist before he he. Um, he moved to the the right. Uh, last his last year of life, he was given a, a nice award by by Ronald Reagan. Uh, he used to say that socialism is about solving our animal problems, so we can begin to solve our our human ones. You know, I, I don't believe in um, kind of. Uh, utopia, you know, I think that any future society will still be one full of depression and angst and heartbreaks and freak accidents and you know all the other things that I, I think are um, inseparable from our human condition. Even certain levels of of what um, Marx would call alienation, um, those things I, I think some of it that's endemic to just any industrialized society with um, unnecessary divisions of labor and whatever, whatever else. But even what I was describing, I. Uh, society in which large spheres of the economy are taken out of the market and, and enjoyed as, as rights, in which there is, for certain, let's say, big infrastructure projects and things like that, there's still a, a role for state planning, but there's a um, large sector for consumer goods that's kind of uh, market competition, different cooperatives are, 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 are fighting over them. Um, you know, this is a society without the capitalist class, right? This is a society without a uh, group of people who are um, contributing something. They're not complete parasites, you know, in the classic, you know, um, agitational propaganda, we might have called them parasites or whatnot. But th these aren't parasites. They're contributing something entrepreneurial risk. They're also contributing a bit of their own labor, often in the form of um, uh, serving as managers and, and whatnot. Um, this class of people would no longer um, exist. Um, there would be just workers who owned and operated the firms. Those workers would be operating in a highly regulated uh, market. They might decide that in larger firms they need managers, but they would, um, as the uh, owners of, of these um, these firms, be able to maybe elect managers on two-year terms, maybe decide the ratio of compensation. Um, perhaps the most menial jobs should actually get paid more than than some of the more enjoyable, interesting managerial jobs and so on. Uh, and this, to me, would constitute the um, abolition of class itself, something that's been around since the um, uh, Neolithic Revolution. So I, I think that's a radical enough um, you know, vision for, for my, can, uh, can my you, taste. Can I ask you why you think that would lead to the abolition of class itself? Because when I run that forward in my head, it is easy to imagine it validating class, right? It's easy to imagine it recreating class. Now, it would have differences potentially, but I mean, even put a different way, I don't want to call America exactly democracy, given that the president lost the popular vote, the Senate lost, the Senate majority didn't win the popular vote, and, and the House routinely doesn't. But um, conceptually, we're maybe in, in the direction of a democracy. And yet, you know, people elect folks, and they and often elect people who get paid a lot more than them, and they elect people and, and, and give them license to, to pursue even quite plutocratic policies, to say nothing of, of, genuine, uh, of genuine equality. What gives you confidence that within that, what we'd end up doing is abrogating class as opposed to creating different kinds of it or different forms of it or 
actually not changing the system all that much at all. I mean, I'm familiar with a fair number of worker cooperatives, and and, and they run differently, but they don't always run that differently. And they come with their own problems and internal politics and all the rest of it. Right. So worker cooperatives right now are are competing within a very different um, market, right? They're competing in... Uh, the same market as other uh, for-profits or under a lot of other uh, competitive pressures that might not exist if if the rules of the market itself were different and if the other market actors were all also uh, cooperative actors. I, I think it would abolish class in that when we talk about class as, as Marxists today, the conditions between uh, workers and capitalists we're often talking about the kind of the wage uh, relation, right? The idea of you're getting paid on a um, hourly uh, basis. You know, it's a contract that you agree to with a capitalist, but it's a contract that's largely one under duress. You're given a worker-starved choice. I think it would be a fundamentally different thing if you're operating in a society where you truly uh, don't have this worker-starved choice, and instead of given a um, a wage, you actually have a stake, you have an ownership, you have at least theoretically some control over or a democratic say over what you're doing. So, for example, um, you know, if you're at a firm and everyone's working 35 hours a week and there's a opportunity to pursue, I imagine there'll be different sort of um, incentives, right? Maybe people will decide to pursue that opportunity and work extra long to. Maybe they'll decide to pursue that opportunity and drop down even further in hours and hire other people. Maybe they would decide that uh, actually they don't have the same um, necessity to work longer. Um, Or maybe they'll decide that there's aspects of their job they would actually be very happy to automate. Whereas today, it's a constant battle between, you know, workers who are trying to retain jobs that um, are uh, you know, at least there's a potential to automate or make obsolete, uh, and capitalists with every incentive in countries, especially in in Northern Europe, for example, where labor is quite expensive, to automate jobs. There's there's, in other words, uh, antagonism driven through society by the fact that it's it's driven by all these different forces with you know goals that are are often opposed. So so I think in that sense you're eliminating class in a broader sense. You're still in a society where people might have different talents. People might be, um, uh, by chance, might end up in better and different situations. I think at that point, it's just simply a matter of um, regulating the outcome of this, um, you know, a fortune on on some. So, can I ask you something about this real quick, just to uh, as yep. a clarifying question? If people, this is something that I find actually somewhat confusing. Given what I think is true about people's political opinions, and given I think what you're intuiting would be true or assuming would be true about how they would vote to construct compensation within a company, why is the marginal tax rate not like 90%? Right? Why are, why are tax cuts, and particularly tax cuts for the rich, such a routinely powerful part of American politics? Because so few people would lose out Again, conceptually, right? Obviously, Republicans and conservatives make arguments about you know, reduce innovation and reduce entrepreneurialism. But, but if people don't feel that way, if that's not how they would act within these cooperatives, if it's not how you believe they feel in their hearts, then why has it not happened in our political democracy? Why have anti-tax politics been so powerful? Well, I think it depends in what in what context and what 
in what era? I mean, if you're in a society where you're not get, it doesn't seem like you're getting much from uh, the government, where you have a you know uh, a means tex- tested and and um, bizarrely constructed um, uh, welfare state, where like people's day to day encounters with the government is like the post office, the DMV, and all those other uh, cliches. You know, I think people might. Um, actually rather just have the cash in their pocket. In other societies, you've seen strong uh, support for functioning um, social goods. You know, you've seen support for uh, the NHS and in the United Kingdom and for the NHS being um, being funded. So, uh, you know, and some of the other disparities you could chalk up to the fact that, you know, rich people who have more power in the society have a bigger incentive to uh, maintain uh, a regressive tax structure, Um, even though, you know, the tax structure itself isn't really the problem in the United States necessarily. You know, they they have this incentive and they they exercise this incentive and they um, are able to lobby and build popular support. But... But the, the thing that I was getting at before is that, you know, there might be differences in, in people's talents or, or the position they're in. But as long as it doesn't um, mean that someone's in a position where they're stifling the life outcomes of another, I think it's a non-exploitative uh, difference. You know, if uh, we're sitting at a table and there's a bunch of uh, uh, oranges and, and apples and I have three oranges and two apples and you have um, you know, th- uh, three apples and two um, oranges, and you would have rather had an extra um, um, uh, orange. You know, I, I don't think that's um, uh, quite the same as a. Um, it's a disparity, but I don't think it's quite the same as um, um, exploitation or oppression or a uh, tremendous injustice. And it seems like an easier um, uh, thing to solve. And, and so, it, it sounds to me then that that at the core of the uh, of exploitation there is something you talked about earlier. The the worker making a starved choice that somebody who is a libertarian might say, well, there's choice all throughout the system. Um, you can choose where to work. You can choose whether or not to take the job. You can choose to walk off the job. You can choose whether to yell at your boss. There's all kinds of things you can choose to do. I think you'd say, I think I've heard you say in, in, in debates with Reason and others, that no, 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 that's not that's not a choice. You, you would starve. You, you got to feed your family. Um, is the is the fix to the worker starved choice just a sufficient safety net? I mean, if we if we put into place tomorrow a universal basic income, is the the worker starved choice gone, or, or or is something more fundamental needed? What what is what is the line at which you would say these choices were no longer being made from a space of exploitation, but from a place of genuine choice? So yeah, I think we've seen that even in conditions of uh, relative, un- if someone's in a condition of uh, un- um, where there's uh, low levels of unemployment in society and there's a safety net, they've um, uh, often been more militant in their demands of their workplaces. Uh, so we've seen this. Um, so the Leninists, basically the the 1920s, 1930s, might have kind of thought the worse it gets, the better. And then the welfare state were just ways to buy off workers. But what we saw in the late 60s and the early 70s was quite the opposite. The workers that were in the most comfortable, the most prosperous societies ever were really discontent and really um, angry, and they they fought back. So I think often, you know, um, the conditions that actually allow someone to fight back might also allow them to leave the production process for a while to do something else with their lives. And I think that 
constitutes a, a greater array of um, a choice. I, I don't think we've ever been in a society where someone could simply choose to just um, leave production. Now, when it comes to the universal basic income, I mean, I think there's plenty of um, productive work out there for people to uh, to do. So I think a lot of not a lot of people are really asking for just money, right? What they're asking for is a jobs guarantee. Um, they're asking for good um, um, work that they could uh, survive and and you know raise families on and and contribute to society um, uh, with. But I do think if if done in the right way in, in a generous enough amount, then uh, the universal basic income even or a um, even a jobs guarantee could be a really radical um, uh, demand and have a lot of um, repercussions. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Uh. Over the years, you've critiqued me a lot in a way which, is, which I totally respect, so it's not meant as hostile. Tell me what's wrong with my politics. T- t- tell me where people like me are missing something fundamental. Yeah, you know, I critiqued you a lot, and now I'm on your, your show, so I feel like, you know, uh, this may, maybe this is a moment of great shame for me. This is kind of like, uh, you know, when Joe and Lai and, 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 and Mao had to, uh, you know, hang out with, uh, with Nixon. I was definitely thinking of it just yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm Nixon. <laughs> no, no. I, I, sorry. I actually meant quite the opposite. I thought I would be Nixon. <laughs> but, um, well, now, I would say that, that there's a truth to your, your politics that, or, or at least you're trying to resolve a question in your politics from what I could see. Um, in other words... I think there's a segment of, of people who really uh, believed in the old New Deal arrangement and believed in, in, in a European context that agreed in the old social democratic arrangement and thought there was merely a lack of will um, and personal perfidy, um, you know, all these other things, uh, betrayals that um, led to um, the welfare state being uh, rolled back. Now, I think Marxists would agree that there was a real structural crisis 
of the system in the 1970s. And, um, you know, I think various people trying to um, uh, retain some elements of social democracy um, ad adapted their politics and, and kind of uh, pursued a, a various variants all around the world of, of grow, give, kind of social democratic um, politics. I think in the form of trying to achieve good policies that help ordinary people in the United States, a lot of people have pursued the route of trying, you know, policy fixes and and you know other other ideas that are kind of in the the mainstay of the Democratic Party. Um, and I, I think your your politics are quite better than than most when it comes to issues like uh, single payer health care. You, you, you don't and, have and to be don't, you don't have to be nice to me here. It's it's really no no no. <laughs> but basically, what I'm saying is that I mean I think. This is a way to try to um, manage capitalism in a new era um, in the interest of ordinary people. Um, and I think that's what a lot of broadly third-way uh, politics is, especially in its best forms in the um, Global South, uh, Lula and other, other efforts. I know uh, how maligned the Lula and the PT is now, but I, I think if you actually look at the, Lula the record in Brazil of, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah Lula yeah. in Brazil, lifting um, you know, millions of people out of poverty. I, th I think it's very hard to just be completely dismissive of, of that. So, so I, I, think, I think it's trying to resolve that, um, that question. I think on the other hand, there's the politics of people like, like Elizabeth Warren, which which kind of can run this, the spectrum somewhere where around you are to somewhere closer to um, Bernie uh, Sanders. But what I, where I would differentiate the politics of Warren from the politics of even someone like Sanders is that, to me, a lot of it reminds me of, um, let's say, we're in the 1920s and there it's like a resurgence of the progressive uh, movement where there's this idea of, of uh, clean government fixes kind of against corruption, against um, the worst sort of profiteering. But the way to get there isn't necessarily through class struggle. And what really captivated me about, about Bernie Sanders in particular was the idea that he constantly not only had um, a, a vision of the kind of reforms that he wanted, but he focused on antagonism as a way to get there. So he would say, you know, there's a problem, right? You're you um, are not getting enough. You know, so you're you're getting screwed over, and um, you know it's not your fault. You know, it's not the fault of immigrants. It's not the fault of all these these other scapegoats. Um, it's the fault of millionaires and billionaires, and we're going to kind of go after them until you get what you deserve. And uh, to me, that process is how um, you know politics is is constructed. It's through creating an antagonist. Creating a protagonist, and through kind of uh, and 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 pursuing that antagonist, you know, um, to uh, force concessions and, and force reforms, and and I think even if Sanders' goals are are different than mine, even if his goals are more uh, broadly social democratic and what he wants to see, he wants to see the U.S. look more like Denmark and so on. Um, I think his method of of going about it. Um, has more in common with with uh, those of us uh, further further uh, left than than Warren and Warren sometimes uses this rhetoric, other times not. But but if that distinction makes sense, you know, I want to kind of draw it out a little. So bit. so I think this is really interesting. So I, I've been thinking about this a bit around um, a piece I maybe one day want to write on neoliberalism. But the the, the way you're describing this to me, uh, I I've started to think about this debate 
particularly the debate on the left and the debate around neoliberalism, is having these two axes that are getting confused a lot. So this is bad for podcasts because it's useful to be able to show axes, but you can think of one as being conservative to liberal. I would, right? (laughs) Um, One is being traditionally like ideologically left to right, right? You know, all the way on one side is single payer and all the way on the other side is sort of libertarian, you know, no healthcare arrangements from the state at all. And then this other axis is an axis of how politics is conducted, confrontation versus compromise. And, you know, on on one end, you might have something more like what you're talking about from Bernie Sanders, right, where you got to name your um, opponents. You have to name uh, who the enemies are. You have to mobilize against a billionaire class. Like the only way you're going to get anything is by is by extracting it from the people who hold power. And another version of, of it might be the more idealized way that Obama looked at it, you might say, or, or Bill Clinton before him, right, which is more of a sense of there's a lot of disagreement in the country. America has political institutions that are very resistant to change and, and, and to get things done, to help the people you want to help, you need to work within the system. And, and one thing I often think when I, I hear some of these debates is that a lot of disagreement that that centers around what is possible and how is it possible. Um, So particularly things on the confrontation to compromise spectrum often are within this. People want to compromise, don't necessarily want to do it because they like the compromise, but because they think it's the only way to go forward. Maybe they're wrong, but um, and and I'm often I often end up coming down more in that direction in some of these debates. I, I, I tend to be very, very convinced of the power of American institutions and stopping things I want to have happen from happening. And then they get recast as, as these sort of ideological debates, right? That they're, that they're a left-right debate, that they're about, you know, how much you want, say, something like single-payer. And, and, and that seems to me to be a, a space of, of, real, uh, of real interesting distinction. So it's fascinating for me to hear you say that, that a core part of what would separate Bernie Sanders' politics is not necessarily what it is, but how it is, like how he sees his theory of change working. Um, how, how, how much is that? I, I guess maybe I'll ask this question differently. Why are you persuaded by that? Why are you persuaded that the Bernie Sanders approach would get you single payer. If Bernie Sanders had won the presidency, um, that, that 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 would have worked to get people health care, as opposed to that ending up somewhere where like Clinton Care did in the in the nineties, and end up being sort of uh, a, a, a failure that that sets back the cause you care about. Right. Well, I mean, I guess it's I'm convinced just through my reading of of history. So even when I think about uh, say post war social democracy. And the reason why I keep bringing up post-war social democracy is because I think it is a really radical um, attempt to try to uh, increase the the power of, of of workers to push redistributive demands in the the system. And, and I think it was something that the generally uh, capitalists learned how to um, how to deal with. But that system's often uh, called kind of a corporatist kind of uh, a system where the state. Uh, labor and um, employers are, are bargaining together and, and coming up with, uh, with with something that that works for everyone. Um, but it's not really a, a regular negotiations if um, all the sides in the room kind of have have guns, right? Um, if all the sides in the rooms um, have kind of fought and struggled and are exerting their their power, then I, I think it's a very different um, uh, sort of uh, arrangement. So I think that even if we end up 
with a compromise, even if we end up with you know something that's that's short of our our absolute um, vision. Uh, I think it's going to need a mobilized public, and I think it's going to need uh, confrontational tactics to even get at the point where we could have a good bargain. And you know, funnily enough, a very similar discussion happened in the most mainstream of contexts, uh, which was the 2008 debates. And I, I, I've never, I barely hear people uh, bring this up, but the obviously now disgraced John Edwards um, uh, actually on, on multiple occasions uh, criticized uh, Barack Obama for having a view of the world in which uh, people could compromise and sit at tables, um, even if they you know, had diametrically opposed interests. Do you remember that all? Or uh, I, just... I wrote about these debates all the time. You'd, you'd enjoy. I was, t- I was too. I was too. Uh, I was too young. I was. And I was. I, I had my whole life enough, ahead of me. I wasn't. I wasn't uh, reading your blog. Oddly, oddly enough, I, I in those debates came down closer to Edwards actually, in terms of how change would happen. And, and this may or may not be correct, but I think. I've ended up becoming more skeptical of that. It's a way in which I think my politics have changed. Was this when you were writing in the American Prospect? Yeah, and okay, so yeah, I, 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 think, I profiled I I Edwards back then. And, and this is my this is to me where where some of this stuff falls. Um, and and I get I get a little bit confused by by the by the conversation. So there's one version of the conversation which is about what is your ideal world, and and there I might have a different ideal world than you or someone else. But but we're all pretty far from our from our ideal world. And then there's this question of how do you get to 60 votes in the Senate? And it's that is the one that I think is really tough and and that the approach to confrontation, given the sort of geographic structure of American politics, I, I always sort of want it to work better than it seems to work. Um, like Ben Nelson didn't care going to say the Obamacare example. I was in a lot of fights back then with folks on, on the public option, which I supported, but did not want to sacrifice the Affordable Care Act over. And to me, the the problem was that there just wasn't that much leverage over Ben Nelson. the 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 way he understood the ideology of his constituents was that they were just not very liberal. They, they, they didn't care. They didn't trust the government. They didn't like the government. They wanted to feel that he wasn't on the side of the government. And so the, the leverage of confrontation was really weakened. Whereas uh, others see it differently, but I, I almost sort of never hear the thing totally run through to the end where it's like, okay, this is how it would have worked. Because I sort of would have liked it to work better. I would have liked to not have the public option get killed, but I, I just didn't see how. Well, I guess I guess maybe, what if you're thinking about it through the framework of presidential politics as you're thinking kind of um, uh, change? Because to me, one key to the politics of confrontation is that it really suits our, our, our moment, right? It suits a moment where people are angry, where they're discontent, and where they're I, I think they're they're looking for both um, someone to give them hopes and dreams, but also someone to to blame, right? Um, and I think this is where Sanders offers something really powerful and really important for it might not be a majority of the American people, but you know for for millions of them. Um, and I think this kind of politics can, at the very least, uh, well, it's kind of the creation of politics, right? It's kind of the creation of of the box and the sphere in which policy is written. So we're not, in other words going to be writing the policy, which might require a delicate dance, like you're, you're saying, but we're creating the conditions, um, the environment in which it is, it is written. So maybe at some point, any, any achievement, any legislative achievement 
within the current system that's ever happened has had components of it which which socialists have been really um, um, angry at. Right, even the the early British NHS had copays and and, and uh, things like that for for pharmaceutical drugs. Didn't have dental included, or or had a variety of other things that uh, you know its primary founder really was um, was horrified um, by. And I imagine any future single payer bill, for example, in this country uh, would. But I kind of think of see my role and rather the role of people on the left at the moment, uh, kind of creating a a politics and creating a box um, in which these future policy discussions will happen. And by the time they happen, it'll be radically different than uh, the kind of axes that, that it's on uh, now. Let, let me try to elicit another piece of the critique from you, because I think this is interesting. Um, one of the things that I've read you say before is that people who approach politics technocratically, people who are sort of engaging in an, on an endless debate over, well, how best would you tweak this policy to blah, 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 are, are missing a fundamental point, which is that power trumps policy. And there are all kinds of policies that, and here I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, so, so, you, so you, should, you should say this however is actually true for you, but there might be policies that make sense, but if they don't restructure underlying power dynamics, then they're not going to be stable because the capitalist class or whatever class you're, you're, you're dealing with is going to ultimately reassert power. And, and you wrote in, in a piece that, that liberalism's original sin lies in, in its lack of a dynamic theory of power. And, and this does strike me as an as a important sort of ideological difference with, between, say, Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama. Um, and, and I'd like to hear you talk about it. And, and if I've misdescribed your position, certainly correct it. Well, yeah, I mean, I broadly agree with that. I probably at this point, I, th- I think I wrote that piece like five years ago. So at this point, I, uh, I'm not sure if I would, uh, especially as a 22 year old or something I was when I when I wrote that, write some uh, something like liberalism does not uh, have a theory of, of, of power because I think it's very the boundaries between uh, liberalism, and the left aren't um, and, and can't be as sharp as some on either side would want to um, draw. Like I, I would claim a lot of uh, Dewey's uh, thought um, as being, you know, um, um, important kind of uh, thoughts of an American uh, leftist, and, and to many, he's kind of the, the quintessential uh, liberal of the um, uh, of the of the time. So I think there's different varieties of of, of liberalism and different varieties of of of, uh, of leftism, but yeah, I mean, I, I fundamentally believe that. Um, we can construct and, and can win certain compromises, but at any moment, um, capitalists are going to want to um, undermine gains, not because they're they're bad people, but because of the constraints they're under by the uh, by the market. People often talk about neoliberalism like it's a set of ideas like conjured by. Uh, Milton Friedman and a handful of really bad people, um, you know, at University of of Chicago. But what it was really um, is, I think, just the natural response of capitalists to a condition where you know they're in a crisis of, of profitability. They're not exactly sure why things are not looking very good, and they want just maximum flexibility to deal with this crisis. And 
labor is in the way, unions are in the way, state regulations in the way. So they're all trying to wrestle free of all these things, and they're trying to use different avenues to break free of those constraints so they could restructure production and restore uh, profitability before they're swept um, under, right? So I think it's that imperative that's always pushing against um, certain certain policies. And, and often I look with fear about the relatively uh, limited accomplishments of the welfare state in a place like the United States in the booming post-war uh, decades. And I think if conditions were that favorable, then, you know, can, um, you know, how do we construct something that, that mirrors even a portion of those accomplishments or the accomplishments at the same time in Europe or elsewhere in the, the advanced, um, you know, industrialized uh, world in much more unfavorable conditions uh, today. So I, I think today to be a leftist does require that level of, um, of humility, which, which maybe is the only thing that I would, I would um, uh, regret in what you quoted or, or, or paraphrased. Because, you know, at the level of social democratic politics, we ha- haven't really had a clear agenda um, on the left uh, since uh, the Mitterrand government in the 1980s. Um, obviously, we've seen the failures of, of planned you know, economies, you know, our model, uh, decades prior to that. Left social democratic experiments of kind of seeking a road to more radical socialism like petered out um, on the left wing of the social democratic parties in, in Sweden in the 70s and 80s. So I, I'm not that confident that you could say that just give us power and we know what to do in a way that I think the left um, at its historic peak could say with some degree of confidence, whether they were revolutionaries or reformists. I think, you know, between, you know, 1900 and, and 1970-something, I think uh, the majority of the, the parties of the left would, would have some confidence about what to do. Uh, and we're, uh, we're not in that position today. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So the thing that my critique of the left on some of this, when, when I read some of these articles and arguments, is that two things often seem to me to be underplayed, which is one, American political institutions. And I, I don't think this is a problem unique to the left. I think it's a problem that affects almost all political commentary. But there's just this constant belief that enough will, enough kind of outrage, something that it often seems to me to be very divorced from like literally how you make a bill a law, which is you got to get all these people who come from these districts and these states where people don't necessarily think like you. And that leads into the other, which is I read a lot of things on the left that seem to me to be consistently doing backflips to explain away disagreement, to, to, to sort of say that really in some fundamental way, virtually everybody agrees with sort of us, the left. 
but it's being hidden or it's being obscured by cultural issues or identity issues. It's not surfacing because the Democratic Party has not gone sort of far left enough and people then, you know, don't want to support a ameliorist version of what they want. To me, a lot of energy in leftist commentary goes into sort of trying to deny that there's a disagreement rather than figure out how to do the persuasion. And and I'm curious, I guess I'm curious, does that seem like an unfair critique to you? Uh, no, I, I don't think it's completely, um, you know, un, unfair. Um, now, what, what I would say is that I do think there is a majority in this country for, at the very least, a politics of uh, redistribution and expanding uh, the welfare state. I think there's not a very large majority, but I think that majority uh, exists. Uh, I think a lot of this, though, and, and, and it, that a lot of this is uh, borne out if you look at particular, like if you, in isolation, policy issues in isolation about the uh, what people actually imagine uh, the wealth redistribution in this country to be, what they imagine the ideal wealth dis- redistribution to do to be, whether they think certain things like education or healthcare should be uh, rights or not. I, I think on this there is there is a majority. Uh, the question is how you turn, turn this theoretical majority into a real majority, and I think that takes persuasion. That does take you know the construction of, of real politics. I think it creates vehicles. I think uh, as far as um, organizations to do that, uh, I think that the Bernie Sanders campaign kind of provides a lens for us to see what it would actually look like to construct this kind of majority in that you kind of saw what he said had popular residents. You saw the areas where he stumbled and was kind of weak and was unable to articulate a, a different, uh, a broader vision, like on foreign policy or other other issues. So I think, I think, like, I think your your criticism would would be fair if not for the experience of Sanders, the experience of Corbyn, and the the recent feeling that we're kind of getting a grip on how to uh, win this majority and construct this majority. But I, I guess when I look at Sanders and, and Corbyn, and, and I want to at least keep them in somewhat different buckets because I think they represent somewhat different things, but both of them are politicians who have done far better than expected, but have not won power. Um and have not so, – so I guess I don't – I take Bernie Sanders as definitely showing that the ideological space in America has changed. And it's changed faster and, a more, and in a much more profound way than people had realized. So I think there's I, – I, I think there's something very real there. And, you know, I kind of came up in, you know, late 90s, early aughts politics, right? In, in many ways, my politics are a reaction to DLC politics, which I was fighting against. Um, and, and so back then, there's actually, I, I think you'll find this funny, there's a, an old Washington Monthly article where they were upset at me constantly criticizing the term neoliberal. And so they had me interview Charlie Peters about what neoliberalism really is. And now I'm often attacked as like a, a, as an, as a tribune of neoliberalism. So it's funny to see yourself sort of change, to see yourself become categorized differently as politics changes around you. But I do think Sanders shows politics has changed. So I, I, I take that point. On the other hand, Bernie Sanders didn't win. And, and, and it wasn't, he wasn't rigged. He didn't get more votes or close to them. Um, he mostly was strong in caucus states uh, as opposed to states where you had popular votes. 
it's possible he would have won if he was the general election candidate. It's also possible that he would not have won if he were the general election candidate. So I guess I don't know how to how, how to take that exactly. Well, let's let's separate three things then, yeah. right? So there's there's one, and, and this also applies to to me individually. What I think. I am have never been more confident in the vision of my uh, politics, right? In opposition to injustice, looking around and seeing that there's so much needless exploitation, needless oppression, uh, you know, people living in poverty amid plenty, you know, all these other things that I think are are social ills that could easily be fixed in a society that had different priorities. So that that's vision. Then there's politics, and I think that's where Sanders and Corbyn are are at, where they're able to and, and have been able to construct coalitions that, you're right, have not won power yet, but have come close. Um, and then there's a third issue of policies. That's kind of, you know, what they would actually do to enact their, uh, to use their political base, to enact their political uh, vision into actual policies. And I think that's where we should maybe be glad if we're supporters of him, for example, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, isn't in power, given all the constraints we know center-left governments the world over have been under for decades, given the conditions of Brexit um, and and uh, whatnot. And I think that's that's really where you could grill the left on. You know, what's your immediate kind of 10-point uh, program? Uh, what does governance look like for the left? You know, um, it seems like even where you have, um, um, he's far from a socialist, but a center-left mayor, let's say, um, in New York City, you know, the vision for change is still very much a grow-give um, vision of uh, some redistribution program on the back of um, development, uh, developer, and, and you know, um, and finance-driven growth, which isn't a whole lot different than than new labor. So I think that's the the criticism. The fact that the first time around trying to construct this coalition, they they fell short, um, I don't think is really the problem. Um, because I, I, I think we'll win, but we won't really know what to do next. I, I have doubts. I, I don't actually have doubts in the vision of someone like Sanders winning in the next 15, 20 years. I'm actually quite confident of that. Uh, I have doubts about um, our ability to enact uh, even a a small little bit of the change we want to see if we had power. So I agree with that. Um, And and so let's talk there for a minute, because this is this is where I was going with it, actually, which is I again, I I grant the premise that I just don't know if Sanders would have won. Um, I and I think he might have. And so let's imagine he did. Right. Let's imagine Bernie Sanders did win the election. And, you know, you can we can sort of have arguments back and forth about what that would have meant for coattails. But let's even say Democrats then have the Senate. So he does a little bit better than Hillary Clinton did, you know, in the Senate, because in this world, he did a little bit better than Hillary Clinton did in the popular vote. But Republicans are going to control the House because I don't think there's any version, given what the geography and gerrymandering looks like, where Democrats were going to win the House in that election. So now he's in office. And like Obama before him, he has aroused a tremendous amount of hope. People are excited about him. He, he, he has a very ambitious agenda. The, what seemed to me to happen to Obama was that a lot of hopes that had been imbued in him and imbued in his brand of politics really crashed when it ran into, OK, how do you get some stimulus package passed? OK, now the stimulus package is too small. Now there's a huge backlash from the people who are upset about the growth of government and, and on and on down the line. You know, I imagine Sanders being in office, and it's not to say he wouldn't have gotten things done. I think he would have, but they would have been 
it, it would have been a profound disappointment to his supporters. And I think that to me is is a real question. What would happen to the left, um, be it here or with Corbyn, if their folks had power and then under delivered? Because that is sort of the consistent experience, I think, of virtually everyone who takes power in, in, in American politics, given the structure of our institutions. So I, I think I think actually, um, and this is going to be completely taken out of uh, out of context. Uh, but we can look at Trump to see what would have happened. So in other words, Sanders or someone like him would be able to get a lot of what he wanted, or some of what he wanted to get accomplished, accomplished through um, executive policy. Um, so through the executive, I think certain things would would change, right? Uh, maybe in certain environmental regulatory stuff would be um, would be pushed forward. There'd be certain other other things that the left would be quite happy about. Elsewhere, I think the best case scenario for the left would be kind of a productive failure, where it seemed like the president was pushing in a direction that his base was supportive of, only to be thwarted again and again by his enemies in Congress and elsewhere and having to settle um, for congressional-backed um, compromises that the president um, sometimes vetoes, sometimes begrudgingly um, signed. Um, and then hopefully this productive failure will lead to uh, just a general shift in American politics where, um, let's say in the case of Sanders, it's normal for there to be a a candidate of the left with kind of uh, socialist roots or at least kind of these left populist ideas. Uh, and it's normal for him to have a base supporting him. On the right, uh, maybe after Trump, it'll be normal to have this kind of um, presence of uh, a blood and soil kind of um, xenophobic populism um, in the American political spectrum. So even if we don't get a full-fledged um, left-wing Labor Party uh, down the road, in you know, in the samples, Sanders example, or maybe if we don't get a full-fledged National Front-style party in the Trump example, these two will still be kind of currents within um, either parties and still have their own base constituency. And, you know, we'll see what will happen um, kind of uh, after that. So, I mean, I think that's my realistic scenario for what it would be like if Sa- if Sanders was in um, in power. Let me ask you about a, a sort of less present focused and more fundamental question. So one of the things that, that I find very appealing in the left vision is this idea that, that, that people should not need to work to live, that there should that we can imagine a society that is not built around the assumptions that our current society is built around. But one of the things that I, I, then, I then think about and, and have always been interested in is on some level, a lot of people currently don't have to work to live. And, and certainly, given the amount of plenty we have in our society, people will not need to work to live. And, and one way to put this is that John Maynard Keynes makes this very famous prediction back in the 30s where he says that you know over the next, I think it was 70 years, income would go up, I forget how many times, I think it was 7 or 15 or something like that. And by that point, nobody's going to need to work more than 15 hours a week in order to afford the basic necessities of life. And what's so remarkable about the prediction is it comes true exactly. That is exactly how much income went up. And so his calculation was correct. And yet people are working more than ever because they ended up wanting more and they compete for status. And, and, and often, you know, the people making a lot of money end up working constantly and, and making themselves really unhappy. And there's something about the way in which material abundance 
leads to a kind of unquenchable, unquenchable desire for more as opposed to a comfort with what we have so that we can, you know, let up on the gas a bit. That strikes me as a problem for all kinds of radical politics. It also strikes me as an unintuitive thing, even though it certainly is present in my own life, too. I'm curious how you think about that, because if it's a human nature thing, then we can change politics all kinds of ways and we're just going to end up re, uh, you know, re, recreating the same situations we're in. Well, I mean, I, I so in my, my own political vision, I, I completely believe in the gospel of, of more. I think there's huge swaths of the world where, you know, people, um, let's say um, in India, for example, you know, who um, are fighting for uh, something that the American working class has, has achieved in the past, um, you know, several decades, which is like refrigeration and, and freezers and microwaves and things like that. And I think I think. In other words, I tend to avoid the the line of of uh, leftist thinking that um, it's concerned about commodity fetishism and things like that. I think that's almost. I, I think it gets can get to lead to a dangerous place if we're spent kind of questioning why people want um, things instead of just saying that that you know people will always want will want more consumer goods to um, lead more satisfying lives, but. Uh, you know, a lot of people also want more free time to spend with their kids, to spend with each other, um, to do all sorts of things. So I think I, I don't really see it as a problem that people want want more. What I see as a problem is that there is a group of people who have it in their interest to force others into a condition of of dependence, right? And you could say that. I don't think you could deny that this condition exists between um, workers and capitalists. I think what you can say is that, listen, sure, there's this theoretical condition of of uh, dependence, but you know, look at the last two hundred plus years. You know, we're living in the most peaceful time in, in history, give or take 10 years, we're living in the most um, prosperous, you know, there's more people than ever, uh, and there are more and more of them are connected with each other, and they're they're contributing, you know, um, you know, incredible things to that we didn't even know was possible to humanity. Um, I think you make that argument, but I think I think you you can't deny that there's a group of people that are receiving most of the gains of this growth, and have every interest in preserving this advantage and to preserving the conditions of dependence that allow them to pay others not a lot to work for them. Um, and I think that's really the the main um, issue. But I think we need to be telling people, and, and I, I think this applies to, um, you know, people with, you know, far, far more centrist than, than me. We need to be telling people that uh, they deserve uh, more instead of questioning consumption um, patterns. And obviously, we need to Find a way to make sure the power plants and other things are are um, emitting less, so that you know this consumption is is sustainable. But I I spend less time, I guess, asking why. It's kind of assumed to me that that people are going to want more things. But but isn't part of that assumption then that as I take the wanting of more, a lot of it is tied up in status. There's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses. There's a lot of wanting to have more than the, the people around you, than the people next to you. There's that old line that a man, whether a man is rich is not about how much money he has, but whether he has more money than his brother-in-law, right? And in does that not create problems for the sustainability of an equal society? And, and I mean this in a very tangible way, 
when I think about the versions and forms and, and, and strains of public opinion that end up tying up social democratic politics, a lot of it has to do with not I don't want more, but I don't want that person to have more. And so some of that you can get around through universalism, but but a lot of it is no, 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 no. Like I don't want that group to have more, and, and I'm actually willing to have less myself to make sure they don't. That, that that there's a tremendous amount of status competition in American life that's tied up in consumerism, um, but it's also tied up in in, in very deep tribal urges, uh, and 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 it's a powerful weapon against politics of equality, against politics of sacrifice, against politics of leveling, against politics that dramatically try to change power relations. It's very people are much more risk averse to losing things they have or that they think they'll have than gaining things that they might want. Right. Well, I think there is a certain there are policies uh, within the umbrella of of left-wing politics that I think would fall into this trap. Um, As far as status, I'm actually not sure that people are are consuming um, things just on the basis of like status, right? If you look at what most people want, what they have, they they need, they uh, you know, a nice home to live in, um, a car, you know, a laptop, a phone, you know, clothing, like all these other things. Like I think, but come on, clothing is clothing well, yeah. is a very heavy status competition. It's some of it, yeah, but it, it's not to me. It's not the bad type of consumption because it doesn't hurt um, others, and for some people, it matters more than others. You know, for. For me, it doesn't matter that much. Um, I'm guessing for you, it doesn't. If it does, you got to dress better. <laughs> but, um, oh, that, that, that cuts <laughs> to the bone. <laughs> but but listen, I do think like we've been talking about UBI, but I think what you just said really has a has a important uh, point as it relates to um, UBI. And UBI is something I generally you know support. Um, obviously, I don't support the variety of UBI where it's like cut all social welfare and give everyone five grand and have them survive, you know, for themselves. But um, th- Traditionally, there's been an alliance between the unemployed and the employed, or at least in a lot of these these traditional kind of labor-left politics, there has been, because the employed are often overworked. They're working 45, 50 hours, and they want to say, all right, we actually just want to work 30, 35 hours a week, and uh, we want you to increase our wages so we don't lose anything as a result. And, you know, why don't you employ some of the unemployed people, um, you know, and pick up some of the difference, uh, some of those hours we're not, you know, working, right? That's like a crude simplification, but that's like a classic way in which we've made politics between the employed and the unemployed parts of the working class symbiotic, right? There's also the sense that we're all in a society together and we're all working, we're doing different jobs, you know, I might be a teacher, and you're uh, in sanitation or something. We're all we're all contributing to society, whereas a UBI, you know, part of the glory of it is allow some people to leave the labor market. But then you kind of ask yourself, you know, how are you allowing some of these people to leave the labor market, uh, and why is that? Uh, you know, and obviously we, we think that's a good thing. Uh, it's by uh, potentially, let's say, taxing people who are still in the labor market. So someone at the end of the day will be able to make kind of a, a cost-benefit calculation and say, you know, if I was on the UBI, I'd be earning 15 grand a year, but instead I'm working, so I'm earning this much more, and you know, the UBI is costing me this much in taxes, so it's not actually worth it for me. In other words, it's I, I think policies and ideas like this could, if put into practice, like actually create this um, intra-class kind of. Uh, 
um, competition and create these these fissures that I don't believe that other universal social goods um, necessarily will. So in other words, I, I see what you're getting at um, in a few examples, but I, I can't see it applying to, I think, some of the basics of, our, of uh, my political vision. Are there critiques or ideas or thinkers from the right that heavily inform your politics? Um, not my politics, but um, as a publishing project, I, I always look to National Review. I was I was a student of the um, American right when I was in college. I, I did a lot of my reading and research on the American um, right. So I was always interested in the formation of National Review and the idea of the power of journals to um, help create and mold politics and currents. And I don't think of Jacobin as a future National Review. I kind of think of us as one of those crazy, like, Hayekian journals that came before National Review. But I always found inspiration in that and in a few of the other um, attempts at that period of the American right. Because, you know, people forget that for the longest time, America was thought of as an inherently, you know, liberal, um, you know, nation, a nation where uh, the right, um, you know, wasn't going to, in the post-war period, develop really strong um, roots and um, the way in which um, you know failure in '64 was turned into triumph in '68, um, all these other things. I think uh, for those of us on the margins of American politics, you know, we could kind of look to uh, if we want some inspiration to um, the uh, many um, reversals and fortunes of the American right. But but there, that's interesting to me, and and I take very much your point on on the publishing side of it. Um, but there, having done a lot of studying of the American right, they're not critiques of how bureaucracies work or how governments function or what fast upheavals in social relations or, or public policy can do that, that, that oh, you found compelling? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, anti-Stalinist thinking and, and, and criticisms of the you know, broad, big projects of um, either the development state in general in the 20th century and its unintended consequences when it, when it has gone badly or, or just uh, Stalinism, period, that have emerged. But a lot of these thinkers, even if they themselves um, joined the right, I don't think necessarily their their criticisms uh, you know, weren't necessarily right-wing criticisms. But yeah, as far as a systematic thinker, uh, I, I, don't, I don't draw a lot from the, from the right. I mean, my favorite novelist is uh, V.S. Uh, Naipaul. And I like Welbeck and, and a bunch. So for for fiction, I think uh, reactionaries are are often the best uh, writers because they they truly have like a deep, um, like almost Burkean worldview. Um, it it uh, it tends to I think help help the uh, help the fiction along. So then let me ask you the the question we used to end the podcast, which is: What are three books you've read, fiction or nonfiction, that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? Now I would say that uh, Isaac Deutscher's uh, trilogy. Um, of of Leon Trotsky would definitely be one, and it's also the favorite book of Tony Blair. So it's not just me; it's Tony Blair approved too, and that's that's three books. Um, <laughs> uh, Michael Harrington. Michael Harrington is most famous for writing uh, The Other America, which is a, a kind of uh, examination of of poverty uh, that. Uh, helped spark the war on poverty, or at least uh, Johnson didn't actually read the book. He read a review of it, and it helped. It helped uh, uh, kind of create that policy uh, initiative. Um, but he wrote a book in 1974 called Socialism, uh, which I would definitely recommend. Maybe it was 72, and I'm actually writing kind of a a new version of it. And I guess um, you know, finally, um, 
the text that that really influenced me a lot was reading um, uh, the Hobsbawm, um, you know, four uh, books, his big, you know, histories of the world, the age of extremes, and on all these other books. Because often, I think um, on the left, uh, what people don't have is don't have a, a a good grasp on on world history. So that, and uh, and I guess that's already that's already. Uh, uh, three. <laughs> Bosco Sankara, thank you very right. much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you to Bosco. Um, thank you to all of you for tuning in to my producer, Bird Pinkerton, the Ezra Klein Shows Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we'll be back next week. More to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.